We want to continue in our series, Awakening to the Power of Prayer. We've been spending the last couple of weeks looking at the internal impact that prayer has, what happens to me when I pray. We've looked at the external impact, what happens when I pray for others, the, the impact on the world around me. Uh, but today we're going to kind of take a step back from that to a more foundational place. Because I know when we talk about prayer, there are those of us who maybe have a challenge with this area. I was blessed. I grew up in a family that prays. Uh, my father got saved a, a few years before I was born, had a kind of a radical transformation in his life, and he was a man of prayer. My mom uh, is a pastor's kid, and you know, usually there's like two routes that pastor's kids go. She was the one who went the good route. Uh, and so she, she's been a prayer warrior as long as I've known her, and I think probably her whole life. Have a hard time imagining my mom not being a prayer warrior. Um, and so I, I was raised around it. It came easy to me. I heard people pray as long as I can remember. I've seen the example, and I was very blessed with that. I know not everybody had that example growing up. Not everybody grew up around parents who were, were comfortable to do that in front of their kids or, or who took the time to do that or, or maybe even who knew Jesus at all. Uh, and so I want to help you if you're in that category where you're like, man, this thing is kind of intimidating for me. It's kind of, it's kind of difficult to me. Like, what am I even supposed to do? You tell me to pray. How, how does that even look? How do I even begin? Well, the good news is the Bible has a lot to say to us about prayer. Uh, And so I think one way that can help us learn is by talking about what not to do. Uh, Sometimes it's really good to have those boundaries put on something so we can know, hey, don't go here, and that'll help me to stay in what is powerful and what is effective. So first of all, I want to share with you the five mistakes that we as believers make when it comes to prayer. Five things that that we would be advised not to step into these things. And I'm going to give you seven attitudes and actions that the Bible ordains for us when it comes to prayer. Uh, So the first mistake that Christians make when it comes to prayer is obvious and simple, so obvious maybe it doesn't need to be said but I want to make sure it's explicit and that is this we just don't pray Uh, we're going to talk about some boundaries we're going to talk about some guidelines I'm going to try to empower you to pray the most effective most faith-filled prayers that you can but make sure you understand this if you step outside of those boundaries and you get something a little bit off it's still a whole lot better to pray than not to pray what I don't want to do today is discourage you from praying because you're like well I got to do it this way Right? I want to help you do it the best way, but understand this, a bad prayer is better than no prayer at all. Uh, we want you to be talking to God. We want you to be going before God's throne. God wants us to do that. So the first mistake, the biggest mistake we can make is we don't pray. That's why we're in this series, by the way, because for so many of us, we're aware of the power of prayer. We know that prayer works, but for whatever reason, we have not built that discipline into our life. So the biggest mistake we can make, the one that we most want to avoid is simply just not praying. Second mistake that we make as believers when we pray is that we pray without faith. We we pray as as an empty ritual. We pray as something that, hey, we're just kind of checking something off the list. I'll say one way that we do this a lot uh, is praying before meals. Uh, I, I know I used to pray before meals, and I had the exact same prayer I prayed before meals every time, and I did not engage my brain, did not engage my faith. I just prayed it, checked the box, and moved on. Um, I think it's really good to pray before meals. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great reminder. First of all, it's, it's not required. Like, I don't know if you've ever, like, been out with somebody who's a Christian, and they didn't pray, and you're like, oh, man. I thought they loved Jesus. Uh, they're not a sinner. They're not a failure because they, didn't, because they ate a chip at the Mexican restaurant before they prayed, right? Like, let's just eliminate that real quick. Um, it's a good habit to be in. Why? Because it reminds me to be grateful. It reminds me that God has blessed me. But if I'm just doing it just to do it, 
There's no power in it, right? We, we want to pray with faith. 1 John 1.5 is probably the verse that I have given more in counsel to people than anything else. Like when people come to me asking for advice, asking for wisdom, asking for prayer, time and time again, I, I quote this verse and I point them to us and it says this. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. Aren't you glad our God gives generously without finding fault? And as we talk about guidelines today, as we talk about the best ways to pray, I want to make sure you understand this. We serve a God who isn't looking for reasons to, to write us off the list, right? He, he's not looking for a way to say, oh, it wasn't quite perfect. That's not what this is about. We serve a God who gives generously without finding fault. Uh, and it says, and it will be given to you. But then verse 6, it continues on. It says this. It says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Why? Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Blown and tossed by the wind. If you have doubt when you pray, you're not rooted in anything. There's no foundation. You can be tossed this way and that way. Verse 7 says, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So the first mistake we make is we don't pray. The second mistake is that we do pray, but we pray without faith. Uh, we saw last week an example in, in Peter being released from prison in the book of Acts that the church was praying for him to be released, right? The church was interceding for Peter and trusting that Peter was going to get let go. And then when he did get let go, the church like doubted it. No, you're just seeing a ghost. No, that didn't really happen. Why? Because they were praying with faith, but they had faith mixed with doubt. It's okay to have some doubt. The reality is all of us have some doubts, right? All of us have prayed some prayers that didn't get answered, and so when we go to God, there, there's some lingering questions that we may have. I'm not telling you you got to have 100% perfect faith every time you pray or you're not going to get answered. What I am saying is this, start stretching your faith. Start believing God for bigger things. Start trusting God more and more because the more faith we bring to the table, the more God's going to respond, the more he's going to move mightily on our behalf. So the first mistake we make is we don't pray. The second is we don't pray with faith. Third, the mistake we make uh, is that we pray pridefully. We pray pridefully. Jesus teaches a parable. A parable is simply an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, with a spiritual application. He teaches this parable we know as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in Luke 18, starting at verse 9, he says this. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. By the way, he's talking to the Pharisees, but it's really easy for us to be them. As Christians, as people who go to church, it's easy for us to be the ones who think, hey, I'm the one that God loves the most. I'm the one that God's going to respond to. I'm the one who's got it all together. And so Jesus, I believe, gives this parable to us as a warning. Verse 10, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, it's a, a religious leader. That's somebody who outwardly kind of had it all together, who everybody looked up to, who seemed to really be someone they could follow their example of, of loving God. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So he uses the most spiritual example he could find and the least spiritual example he could find. A tax collector was a liar, a cheat, a traitor, a thief, scumbag, the lowest of the low. And Jesus compares and contrasts this outwardly spiritual person with this outwardly unspiritual person. Verse 11, he says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. And you can just hear the haughtiness in this Pharisee's voice. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this scumbag tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. So not only does he pray with this pride of God, thank you that you didn't make me worthless like you did this guy. Then he starts listing his accomplishments. He starts listing his goodness. Now, 
The things he's listing are good things. He fasts twice a week. That's not a bad thing. That's an awesome thing. I believe in fasting, and I'm grateful for fasting. I'm not, I don't fast twice a week. I haven't gotten to that place. Uh, he, he says he tithes. I'm grateful for tithing. I do tithe faithfully and consistently, and I've seen God move mightily in my life because of it. These are good things that he's listing, but he's saying because of his goodness, God owes him something. See, the danger for us as people of faith The danger for us as Christians is we start bringing our accomplishments to God. God, I went to church faithfully. God, I taught my kids about you. God, God, I honored you financially. How come this is happening to me? How how come I have to suffer in this way? How come you let this happen when this person over here who's sinful, this person over here who's unrighteous, this person over here who's not loving you, they seem to get everything that they want. The danger for us as believers is we get to a place of pride where we think we're entitled to the goodness of God. And the reality is we're not. Be careful about asking God to give you what you deserve. Be really, really careful about going to God and thinking you can go to him with a list of your goodness and God give me what I deserve because the danger is he will answer that prayer. God forbid I ever get what I deserve. I'm so grateful for a God of grace and a God of mercy who does not Give me what I deserve. This this Pharisee thought God was going to give him what he deserved. Verse 13. says, but the tax collector, in comparison, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other man, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Simple prayer. Short prayer. It wasn't long, wasn't in depth, wasn't complex. He very simply said, God, just have mercy on me. He says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all those who will humble themselves will be exalted. The danger we have as Christians is that we come before God pridefully. We come before God entitled, thinking that God owes us something, that we deserve something because we chose to do something right. Make sure we stay far, far away from that. The fourth mistake we make as Christians when we pray is we pray legalistically. What I mean by legalistically is is a danger of what we're about to talk about. Because I'm going to give you seven attitudes, probably five attitudes and two actions that the Bible ordains for us to have when we pray. And if you're not careful, this is just going to be a checklist. I'm going to do these seven things. And and if I do these things just right, God's going to move. And that's not really what I'm getting at. Um, I don't want to create a, a group of legalistic believers. I know growing up, I knew people who kind of went to some different kinds of churches, and I remember one time I was over at my friend's house, and they were going to pray over a situation, and they went and they got out a book of prayers. I think it's good to have a book of prayers. I think it's cool to see how people have prayed in the past, and we can be encouraged by that, and sometimes we can even pray those prayers. But this family specifically, that was the only way they ever prayed, is, man, they found a book of prayers, they opened up this prayer for this situation, they looked for this topic, and they prayed this prayer, and, and ultimately, that's not what Jesus is trying to teach us. When Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, the disciples come to him and they say, hey, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus is going to give the Lord's Prayer, which many of us could probably quote. Jesus doesn't say, this then is what you should pray. He says, this then is how you should pray. What's he doing? He's trying to teach them to bring their situation to God. These are the kind of things to pray for. This is the kind of way to approach God. And the reality is Jesus died so that you could go to the Father. 
so you could have relationship with him, so that you could know him. So it's not bad to quote the Lord's Prayer. I've quoted it many times. It's not bad to to quote another prayer. I'm not saying those things are, are horrible and evil and sinful. They're not. What I am saying is God wants you at a place where you can talk to him openly. Where, where you can bring your situation before him, your heart before him, your passion before him, your honor before him. That's where he wants to get you. So we're not just trying to create a, a list of rules and regulations and a list of, hey, say these specific things. He, he's not a genie in a lamp, right? It's not like, hey, if I do these four things, then I'm going to get these three wishes. That, that's not the way it works. What he wants is a relationship with us. He wants our heart, just like Pastor Braden talked about. So let's not pray legalistically. Number five mistake we can make, and this is an especial danger for people who worship in a church like us, is that we can pray casually. And what I mean by casually is this. If we're not careful, because we worship in a church where we're not wearing suits and ties, because we worship in a church where some people come in shorts or flip-flops, or we, we come as we are, we can send and a, a subtle message that says, hey, following Jesus is just kind of a casual thing. You can just kind of do it however you want to, right? I don't think it matters how you dress. That's why we do this this way. I'm glad I don't have to wear a suit and tie every Sunday. Thank you for not requiring me to do that. As much as I sweat, that would be a nasty mess for all of us involved. It's a good thing that I grew up in this generation and I don't have to wear a suit and tie on Sundays, right? Between the sweat and the tears, it would be just a, a, a horrible thing for anybody to witness. Uh, very grateful for that. But if we're not careful, we can misunderstand and think that God is somehow casual. I, I know when, when I was, like, in my early 20s, there was this fad that came out, Jesus is my homeboy. And we had all these shirts that, Jesus is my homeboy. And there was this thing, I mean, it went through celebrities. I think Brad Pitt wore it. And, you know, a whole bunch of these famous people wore this shirt. And it's like, man, Jesus is a whole lot more than my homeboy. Is he my friend? Yeah. But he's my king. He's my savior. He's my Lord. And if we're not careful, we can dumb this thing down to such a level that it's just like I'm talking to somebody else. And yes, we want to be able to talk to God. We want to be able to conversate with God. We want to be able to to openly share with him. But don't make the mistake of thinking he's just any old friend. This is the king of the universe. This is the savior of the world who we're approaching. And so we want to make sure that we walk in reverence. And we'll talk about reverence a little bit more in a minute. So these are some mistakes that we can make. And I'm, I'm not here to say that, hey, if you ever made these mistakes or you ever walked in any of these things that somehow you're disqualified as a Christian. I've made probably every mistake on this list, right? We, most of us have probably done it. We serve a God of grace and a God of mercy. Uh, and I believe that he even answers our prayers even when we don't pray the best way. Uh, but I want to empower you to pray the best way. I want to empower you to pray biblically because I think that the word of God took time to teach us to pray for a reason to help us to pray in the ways that God is most receptive to, where God is going to move most mightily on our behalf. So today I want to give you seven attitudes and actions, really five attitudes, two actions, to help you pray most biblically. The first one is this, is simply pray continually. To constantly stay in an attitude of prayer. First Thessalonians 5 says this, it says, Rejoice always. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, and then it says this, it says, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus. Anytime the Bible spells it out for me, this is God's will, that gets my attention. A whole lot of us in this room probably right now praying for God's will in a work situation, in a relationship situation, and that's a good thing. You should pray for God's will. But man, if the word of God spells out for us what God's will is, let's make sure that we're walking in that thing. So what is God's will? God's will is that I would rejoice always, 
that I would pray continually, that I would give thanks in all things. This is God's will for me in Christ Jesus. And if we're not walking in that will right now, this is a great reminder to step towards that, to move towards God's best in our life. Now, now the old translation says to pray without ceasing, right? And that's, that's a lot. That's, that's a big challenge. It's not saying you just need to go lock yourself in your prayer closet and pray 24 hours a day until you die, right? That, that's not what it's actually asking us to do. There, there's other biblical principles where we see, hey, we're supposed to go to work. We're supposed to raise our families. We're supposed to eat, right? Like there's other stuff we're going to do where we're not constantly actually talking to God. So what is Paul talking about when he says pray continually? He's saying just stay in an attitude where you're in contact with God kind of throughout the day. You're just touching base, you're just checking in. You ever been in a text message conversation and you see the little dot, dot, dot come up so you know that they're responding and you're like sitting on the edge of your seat or maybe you're nervous because, man, what's coming next? Like you get paranoid. Uh, We've probably all had that dot, dot, dot text message. I want you to start to have conversations with God where you just imagine the dot, dot, dot. I've just asked God for something. I've just gone before God, and I believe he's given a response. I believe he's going to speak. I believe he's going to reply. And so wait on the edge of your seat, man. Stay tuned in and dialed in to that conversation throughout the day. So the first thing we need to do is pray continually. Second thing we need to do, second attitude for us to have is we need to pray expectantly. Expectantly. In other words, we don't just pray just to pray. We pray believing it produces results. We pray believing that we serve a God who actually wants to answer us, who wants to move on our behalf. James 1.6 says, but when you ask, we already read it, but let's just reiterate it. He says, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. It goes on the next verse to say that that person should not expect that they receive anything from God. So what should we do? We should play with expectation. We should pray believing that God's going to move mightily in response to what we prayed. Now, that doesn't always look the way that we wanted it to look or the way we expected it to look when we pray. I've prayed many times for things, and God moved much greater than my expectation. God's plan is always better than my plan. So be open to God doing it differently, but expect him to move in the situation. Expect him to respond in whatever way he sees best. So ask and expect Ask and we will receive. Seek and we will find. Knock and the door will be open. This is the promise that God has for us. So we're going to pray continually. We're going to pray expectantly. Thirdly, we're going to pray humbly. We're going to pray humbly. We just saw this great parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And Jesus says this as he sums it up. He says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other man, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Why? For those who exalt themselves are going to be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. I don't want God to humble me. Elsewhere in scripture it says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, I don't want God resisting me. I don't want God holding me back. I don't want God putting the hand out and saying, you don't get to go any further. And the only thing it says that God does resist is the proud. It's the one thing that God says, no, you can't go any further you got to stop right there because I'm not going to let you glory and steal glory from me. I want everybody to know who's really the source of this. they got to see that it's me because they got to rely on me. They can't rely on you. And so we got to pray with humility. We've got to be willing to recognize, God, it's not about me. It's not about my goodness. It's not about my entitlement. God, I'm coming to you because you love me. I'm coming to you because you care for me. And I'm going to trust in you, but I'm going to come before you humbly. Fourth attitude we're going to pray with, we're going to pray reverently. Talked about this a little bit and not praying casually, 
But man, we're going to be people of reverence. Reverence, I believe, is a lost art in our generation. It's, it's something that, that we don't do as well as some previous generations. Now, there are some things we do better, right? We understand God's love a lot better in our generation. We understand grace a lot better in our generation. I'm grateful for the strengths of our generation. But if we're not careful, we can throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the reality is God is worthy of being revered. He is worthy of being reverenced. He, he's not my homeboy. He's my friend. But he's not my homeboy. He's my savior. He's my king. He's the one that I look up to. He's the one who died for me. I've got to walk in a deep reverence for him. Psalm 5-7 says, but I, by your great love, can come into your house. David has this revelation that I'm welcome in God's presence. I can come into your house. Why? Because of your great love. And he says, in reverence, I bow down towards your holy temple. Why do you bow down before somebody? You bow down as a recognition that you're greater than me. But I'm in recognition that I'm in the presence of somebody who is worthy of more than I am. And our God is worthy to be revered. He's worthy to be reverenced. Years ago in 2005, in fact, it's almost 16 years ago. It'll be 16 years ago, a, a month from now. We started the 662, our youth ministry, and we founded it on this, this verse in the, the message remix translation that says there's one thing I'm looking for, a person simple and plain, so I'm not looking for somebody who's got it all together. I'm not looking for somebody who's figured it all out. I'm looking for a person simple and plain, reverently responsive to what I say. What's our goal? Our goal is to raise up a generation of people who reverently respond to the word of God, who fear him, who revere him, who respect him, and who respond to his word. That's what the 662 is about. That's really what Christianity is about. Man, that we would see that happen. And so we've got to pray with some reverence. We've got to pray with some respect for the one that we're praying to. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus opens up. He says, this is how you should pray. What does he say? He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's not, yo, God, what's going on, right? That's not, hey, friend, how are you doing today? Like, man, I'm going to come before God with reverence the recognition of who he is and how powerful he is in my life. Now, I don't think we have to get legalistic and use those exact words. I don't think we have to say it the same way every time. That's not what Jesus is teaching us. He's teaching us about the heart, about our attitude when we approach God, that we'd approach him with reverence. Fifth attitude we're gonna come before God with is we're gonna pray boldly, boldly. We serve a God who wants us to pray bold prayers, who wants us to pray audacious prayers, who wants us to believe him for big things. A lot of times we, we kind of dumb our prayers down to, to asking things like, God, just be with me today. You know the promise of God is he's going to be with you? You don't have to ask him to be with you. I'm not saying you're a failure if you pray that God just be with me. But man, I think you can ask him for more than that. You, you can ask him for something bigger than that. Instead of saying, God, be with me today, say, God, I thank you that you are with me today. And because you're with me, God, here's what I need from you today. God, would, would, would you give me encouragement today? God, would you give me strength today? God, would you speak through me today? Would you open the door for me to share my faith today? Start playing some bigger prayers, some bolder prayers, and believe in God to do some incredible things. Hebrews 4.16 famously says this. It says, let us therefore come boldly. Everybody say boldly. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I've been doing ministry now full time for over 20 years. I started in, in August of 2001. In those 20 years, I can't remember a time where there was more needs in the body of Christ. 
Can't remember a time where more people had more specific things going on where they were praying for, where they were asking for prayer. I can't remember. And, and I started a ministry the month before 9-11. Right? Everybody's world fell apart in 9-11 around one thing, but I've never seen a time where it's been so many different things. So much going on. And there's so many people who are dealing with so many things. The reality is God says, come boldly before my throne. Why? Because you're going to receive mercy. You're going to find grace to do what? To help you in your time of need. But I love that he says, I want you to come boldly. Famous quote that, that I love so much. says that the only person who would ever interrupt a king or, or wake up a king in the middle of the night for a glass of water is his child. That's the kind of boldness we get to go before God with. Man, that we are welcome in the presence of the king. By the way, if you don't know it or not, you're the child of the king. Right? So you can boldly come before the throne, not because you're entitled, not because you're righteous, but because the king loves you, because the king welcomes you, because the king has invited you into his presence. He says, I don't want you, just want you to come. I want you to come boldly. I want you to come knowing that I want you here, that you're welcome. We get to go boldly before the throne. And there we're going to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God wants to give us some help right now, church. He wants to move mightily in our situations. He wants to move on our behalf. And the way that he does that is by allowing us into his presence for us to make our requests known. So we need to do it. So that's the five attitudes. Let's talk about the two actions. I'm going to give you two very specific things, very simple things, very easy things to do when you pray. The first one is this, number six, pray to the Father. Pray to the Father. In other words, don't pray to Jesus. Don't pray to the Holy Spirit. Now, if you pray to Jesus or you pray to the Holy Spirit, I don't think you're wrong. I don't think that God doesn't hear you. Um, I, there are times, I think, where we could address Jesus, where we can specifically thank Jesus for what he did for us. We can specifically invite the Holy Spirit because we know he's the one who's empowering us and equipping us, and we can speak to those entities of the Trinity. But, but Jesus has ordained for us in teaching his disciples how do we pray. He teaches them to pray to the Father. He shows it to them in the Lord's Prayer. Then in John 16, as, as Jesus is facing the cross, his last conversation with his disciples, he teaches them about his relationship with the Father, his relationship with the Holy Spirit. And in that conversation, he tells them this. He says, in that day, in other words, the day that's going to come, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again, and I'm going to heaven. And when I go to heaven and you don't see me anymore, in that day, he says, you'll no longer ask me anything. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to his 12 disciples. He's talking to men who spent their last three and a half years eat, sleeping, and breathing with Jesus. They traveled the countryside together. They're best friends. They're close. And Jesus says, a day is coming where you're not going to pray me. You're not going to ask me for anything. You're going to ask my father. If Jesus told his disciples, don't pray to me, then I think he would say the same thing to us. He says, there's an order to this. There's a right way to do this. I want you to come to my father. He says, I tell you the truth. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So, so I know as a kid, a lot of us were taught maybe to pray, dear Lord Jesus. And that's how we open up. And again, I don't think that if you pray, dear Lord Jesus, God's like, nope, not interested. You're a failure. But I do think there's a reason why Jesus took the time to say, don't come to me. So you're not going to ask me. You're going to ask the father. And I want to pray the way God wants me to pray. I want to pray that way as an act of obedience, as an act of submission. But you know what? It actually increases my faith that if I'm praying the way God's ordained, that he's going to move and he's going to respond. 
So I want to empower you, go before God. Now, when you do that, I don't think you have to use like magic words, right? It's not our Father who art in heaven. It's not dear God. It's not dear Heavenly Father or Father. You can say it any way where you're approaching him. I don't think you have to have the exact right expression. Just go to the Father. That's the one that we pray to. But don't just pray to the Father. Number seven, pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, whatever you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. Then he continues on in verse 24, and he tells them this in verse 24. He says, until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. He says, so you're going to ask the Father in my name, and he's going to respond. You're going to receive. Anytime Jesus says, ask and you will receive, that gets my attention. I don't want to just talk. I don't want to just pray blind prayers. I want to pray with trust that he's going to move. Verse 25, he says, though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. Verse 26, in that day, you will ask in my name, he says it again, and I'm not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. Notice he clarifies this. He's not saying you come to me and I'm going to God for you. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's at the right hand of God the Father bringing your name before God, saying, this one's mine. I've covered this one in my blood. I've, I've saved this one. I've forgiven this one. They're with me. He's praying for you, but he's praying specific prayers for you. He's not just sitting up there waiting for us to say, Jesus, I need this. Can you give a shout out to dad for me? I've got three kids. One of them's 19 months old. He doesn't make verbal requests. He makes requests with grunts and points, uh, but he gets his point across pretty clearly. Uh, but I've got two older kids who do articulate their requests, Judah and Alexa. Judah's six, almost seven, Alexa's five. And, and almost every day this will happen. One of them will come to me and make a request for the other one. Judah wants to know if we can watch TV, Dad. Uh, Lexi wants to know if we can eat something, right? They, they come and they blame it on the other person. Like, hey, this, I'm, just, I'm just being a good sibling, right? right yeah. They're, they're ask, yeah, asking for a friend, right? Asking for a sibling. Uh, they come to me and I'm like, well, tell Judah if he wants to watch TV to come talk to me. Tell Lexi if she's hungry, come talk to me, right? I'm not this big, scary, intimidating dad. Like, I'm, I'm going to respond well, or I'm going to help them out, even though I may not always say yes, like it's going to be gracious and loving, uh, and so they don't have to be intimidated. Well, the reality is you don't have to go to the Father through some other intermediary. You don't have to come to me and say, Pastor, can you pray for me? Now, there's power in the prayer of agreement. There's power in us praying with each other and for each other, and so I'm not telling you not to ask me, but I'll tell you this, if you're coming to me and asking me to pray for you, but you're not praying for yourself, I don't know how much God's going to move in response to that. The person who's got the greatest authority to go before God for your situation is you. He says, ask the Father in my name and I will respond. And we don't have to go through Jesus. We don't have to go through the Holy Spirit. Those are good things. And, and, and man, I'm grateful for the Trinity and I think we can honor them and reverence them and worship them. But Jesus has ordained, he says, look, yes, the Trinity is equal. Yes, we're, we're all in unity and we love each other, but the Father is the ultimate authority. The Son is in submission to the Father. The Spirit is, is in submission to the Father. We're in submission to the Father. So I came to restore you to relationship to the Father so you could go before the greatest authority there ever was in the history of, of creation. You can go before that throne on your own. But when you go, go in my name. Here's the thing that Christians do so often is we'll pray, and then at the end of our prayer, and I don't know why we decided to do this at the end of the prayer, I don't think it has to be at the end of the prayer, you can put it anywhere in the prayer, but at the end of the prayer, we'll say something like this, in your name we pray, right? Now if we say in your name we pray, and we pray to the Father, whose name are we praying in? Father's name, right? 
So, so we're missing out on what Jesus has ordained for us to do if we do it that way. Or we might say, in your son's name we pray. Or we might even get real spiritual and say, in your son's holy name we pray, right? Like we might throw something in there like that. And that's good and it's fine. But here's what I believe. I believe the power is in the name of Jesus. I believe the name that causes demons to flee is the name of Jesus. You see, the reality is the name of God is not really that threatening and that offensive. You can watch any award show full of, full of filth and debauchery and horrible movies and horrible attitudes and horrible music or whatever it might be, and you're going to get somebody on stage, and one of them is going to, first thing out of their mouth, man, I just want to thank God. God's not that offensive. Even in the most secular, ungodly environments, God isn't very offensive. But you know what gets offensive real quick is the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is exclusive. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. There's no way to the Father except through me. And our culture doesn't like exclusivity. Here's the good news. Jesus is completely exclusive, but he's also entirely inclusive. He says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how good of a life you've lived. Doesn't matter what color you are, what language you speak, what nationality you are. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He is entirely inclusive. But he's also exclusive. And our culture doesn't like exclusivity. The name of Jesus is offensive. And so for some reason, the enemy has succeeded in getting us to just kind of sidestep and walk on eggshells when it comes to the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, when you come to the Father, ask in my name. Well, what's his name? It's the name of Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to say the name of Jesus because he's talking in the third person and that's weird and it's awkward, right? But he says, when you come to the Father, ask in my name. So church, I want to empower you. Ask the Father. Go before the Father, and when you do it, use the name of Jesus. Now, it doesn't have to be at the end of your prayer. You can do it, Father, in the name of Jesus. Just get it out of the way at the beginning. You can do it somewhere in the middle. You can do it at the end. The timing isn't what's important. The name of Jesus is what's important. Because that's where the power is. It's the name of Jesus that breaks chains. It's the name of Jesus that frees captives. It's the name of Jesus that causes demons to tremble. It's the name of Jesus that causes miracles to happen. And so we pray to the Father, the ultimate authority, in the name of the Son, the one who's won victory for us. And this is the way God's ordained for us to do it. Now again, I'm not saying if you prayed in the name of, in your holy name, I pray. That somehow God cancels out your prayers or didn't hear your prayer, that's worthless. I don't think that's the case at all. I do think there's power in the name of Jesus. And man, the more that we can include that, the more we can address his name, the more we can use that, that man, we're, we're increasing the power, the effectiveness of our prayers. And I don't know about you, I want my prayer to be as effective as possible. I want God to move to the greatest degree. So I'm going to pray boldly. I'm going to pray reverently. I'm going to pray humbly. I'm going to pray constantly. I'm going to pray in the name of the Father, I'm gonna, or to the Father, and I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus because this is the way God's ordained for me to pray what God has asked of us. So the last couple of weeks, we've given you some homework to spend an extra five minutes a day praying in, in different ways. I want to just continue that same assignment. We're just going to walk that out through the rest of this series. Five minutes extra a day, whatever your normal prayer life looked like before. Maybe it was zero, take it to five minutes. Maybe it was 10 minutes, take it to 15. Maybe it was 30, take it to 35. But an extra five minutes a day, and I want you to put into practice some of these things that we've talked about today. Come to him a little more humble than you have before. Come to him a little more bold than you have before. Come to him a little more expectant than you have before. Maybe you need to tweak some of the language and begin to pray to the Father and, and begin to use the name of Jesus and pray in his name because that's where the power is. But man, take these tools and put them into practice because God wants to answer your prayer because he's told us and invited us that we can boldly come before the throne of grace 
to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen? Amen. We're going to partake of communion in just a moment. The worship teams join me to help us have the atmosphere of worship as we do this. And I want to address a couple of things before we get into it. First of all, to all of us as believers, this is something that God has asked us every time we do this to examine our hearts. That if we're going to partake of communion, we need to check ourselves first. And he wrote that to the church. This wasn't for unbelievers. This wasn't, hey, you need to go get saved if you're not, before you do this, all that you do. And we'll talk about that in a second. But he's writing to Christians saying, look, there's going to be times where there's some junk that's grown in your life. There's going to be some habit that's gotten out of whack. There's going to be some sin that's been unconfessed. And so communion causes us and calls us to examine ourselves. So over these next few minutes as I talk, I'm going to share some scripture. But if you need to do some business with God, you are free. I'm just giving you a free pass. You can ignore everything I say. Just, just deal with God right where you're at. I mean, talk to God. Examine your heart. Begin to invite the Holy Spirit to put his finger on any aspect of your life that's not where he wants it to be. It's a brave prayer. It's a bold prayer. But ask him to show it to you. And if he shows you something, man, repent of it. Give it to him and begin to take the steps to, to make the changes that he wants you to take. So we're going to examine our hearts as we do this. Secondly, this is the one thing that we do in church that is exclusive to those who know Jesus. And God has ordained for this to be something that his people partake of the blood and the body of Christ. So if you're not a Christian with us today, the good news is you can become one. We don't want to exclude you. We want to include you. We want you to be part of what we get to do. Just like we talked about, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So over these next few minutes, as others are examining their heart, if you know, hey, I'm far from God. I haven't received the salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. You have the opportunity to talk to him. Here's all you really have to do. You gotta repent, recognize that you're a sinner, give him that sin, and you gotta call on his name as Lord. What that means is not just, hey, I wanna be saved, not just, hey, I wanna be a Christian, not just, hey, I'm thirsty and I want to drink an ounce of grape juice. Uh, it means, God, I'm making you Lord of my life. In other words, I'm, you're making him king. You're putting him on the throne of your heart. If you're ready to do that, he's going to save you. He's going to wash you of your sins. He's going to bring you into his family. He's going to give you a place with him in eternity. So we invite you to do that on, here on site or online if you need to get right with God. But as you do, I want to share with you a passage from Luke chapter 24 that I think is so encouraging when it comes to communion. Give you some context here. Jesus has died and he's risen again. And this is actually Easter Sunday. This is the day that he's raised. And as he's already appeared before some of the disciples, he goes for a walk. And he's gonna appear to two disciples on the road to a town called Emmaus. And for whatever reason, Jesus decides to hide himself from them. He doesn't reveal who he is. So we don't know if he like changed his shape. Uh, more than likely, he just prevented their mind from being able to recognize who he was. But somehow, they didn't know who he was. And Luke, we're going to pick the story up in verse 18 of Luke 24. It says, one of them named Cleopas asked him, asked Jesus, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So they're having this conversation about what's going on with Jesus, with the Messiah. And Jesus comes in and he's just like, hey, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you the only one here who has no clue? Uh, and Jesus says, what things, verse 19? Uh, and he, they said about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. So they recognized there's something in Jesus. They recognized he was unique, that he was powerful, but they weren't completely sure who he was. They're going to talk about that a little more. 
So verse 20, they said, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. So that this Jesus just died. In fact, he had just died a couple days before on Friday. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We hoped he was the Messiah. We hoped he was the Christ. We thought he was. And what is more, it is the third day since this all took place. Verse 22, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb this morning, early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So they're beginning to hope again. They're beginning to think maybe this is possible. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I wonder how many times Jesus says about me, how foolish you are. I wonder how, how many times it's like, don't you get it? I've taught you this. How many times? And you still haven't had the light bulb go off. I think I frustrate him sometimes. I frustrate myself sometimes. Verse 26, he said, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Don't you understand this was all part of the plan? This is the way that it was foretold from the beginning. And then verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses, Moses being the law, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, he explained to them what was said about him in all the scriptures concerning himself. So he begins to walk through the Old Testament with them and saying, hey, this was talking about the Messiah. This was pointing to the Messiah. Now they don't know that he's actually talking about himself. They haven't figured that out yet, but he's connecting all the dots. Can you imagine how amazing that conversation was? Oh my goodness, I would love to go on a walk with Jesus and let him unpack the Old Testament for me and just blow my mind. Like this is an amazing honor that these men have. These two disciples, now they're not part of the 12, but they're other followers of Jesus. Verse 28 says that they approached the village to which they were going as they get close to Emmaus. Jesus continued on as if he was going further. I love Jesus. First of all, he acts like he doesn't know what's going on in Jerusalem. Now he acts like he's going somewhere further. You know, this is why we pray, by the way. Jesus already knows what's going on in your life, and he already knows what you need. He just wants to hear you say it. He wanted to hear them explain what was going on about the Messiah. He wanted them to say, hey, come hang out with us. So he acts like something else to cause them to do what he wants them to do. I love that Jesus does that. Verse 30 says, when he was at the table with them, he sits down. It says, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. Right? We've got a little wafer in a communion cup. By the way, side note, if you need a gluten-free option, we have those in the back on either side for you. We don't want to cause anybody to get sick because we took communion. Uh, so this does have gluten in it. We'll warn you that. I'm sure it's a very, very small amount. Uh, but you are welcome to grab the gluten-free option. We, we wanted to be prepared for you. It says, when Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he began to give it to them. Verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight it was when jesus broke bread that they realized who he was it's when he gave them communion that they recognized who he was here's the principle i want to share with you today communion allows us to see jesus in our lives it allows us to gain clarity of what's going on in our life you see the reality is jesus is already at work and many times we don't see it Many times we're unaware of what he's up to. And so communion brings to us a supernatural clarity. It allows God to show us what he's up to in our lives. It allows him to reveal himself to us. First Corinthians 11, Jesus famously says, look, as often as you do this, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. So that's what we're gonna do in just a moment. We're gonna partake of this 
as a way of God revealing himself to us, what he's up to in our lives, for us to see Jesus more clearly. I hope and pray that you see Jesus clearly as we partake of this. And we're going to do it as a way of honoring Jesus' final request of his disciples. Of all the things he could have asked them, he said, look, I want you to remember. Remember what I've done for you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to take nails through my wrists and thorns through my skull and whips in my back. I'm going to suffer deeply. And even beyond the physical suffering, the spiritual suffering is going to be so much worse. As I carry the weight of the sin of the world, you'll never be able to pay me back. And I'm never going to ask you to pay me back, but I am going to ask you this. Don't forget. I don't know about you. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes I get distracted. Sometimes I get focused on all the foolishness of this world. Political debates and military stuff going on and sickness and disease and frustrations and phones and computers and internet and all the distractions of life and I don't actually forget but I forget you know what I'm talking about right like I just aren't I'm not focused on it I'm not aware of it I'm not celebrating the resurrection in my life I'm not celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus and so communion causes us to remember it calls us to remember so we're going to take a couple minutes the worship team is going to lead us in song but I want to ask you where you're at to do some business with God if you've already checked your heart and you know you came in here good this morning you've already repented you've already gotten yourself right then you can stand and sing with us and worship with us and we want to invite you to do that but if you need to talk to God if you need to thank him for what he's done if you need to ask forgiveness for what you've done this is what communion calls us to let's remember his sacrifice let's celebrate what he's done and then ask him to reveal himself in your life God show me what you're up to Show me where you're leading me. Show me what's next. Jesus, reveal yourself to me as we partake in communion. We're going to take a couple minutes and do that as they sing. Then I'm going to come up here. I'm going to lead us in, in taking the bread and the juice. And then we're going to sing. So take a couple minutes and do some business with God.
thanksgiving. Jesus said that this is his body that was broken for you. His body was broken for you, Miss Kathy. His body was broken for you, Joshua. His body was broken for you, Tracy. His body was broken for you. It was broken for me. That's a powerful thing. As he's about to die, he says, my body was broken for you. Why was it broken? So we could be whole. So we could be well. So we could be restored. He said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It says he took the bread, he broke it, and he gave thanks. And so we're going to do exactly that. We're going to thank him that he allowed himself to be broken. We're going to thank the Father that he sent Jesus to die in our place, that we can be whole. And we're going to claim the wholeness that God has provided for us. Spiritual wholeness, emotional wholeness, relational wholeness, physical wholeness. We're going to claim that wholeness in the name of Jesus. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, we come to you right now. We thank you for the body of Jesus. God, we thank you that his body was broken for me. God, let that never lose its power. Let that never lose its impact. That the king of the world, the savior of the universe died for me. God, we thank you that you let Jesus' body be broken for us. Jesus, we thank you for suffering this for us in our place. We thank you that you took the whips, that you took the thorns, you took the nails. More than that, we thank you that you carried our sin to the cross, that we could be whole. So today, God, we claim spiritual wholeness. God, free us of sin, of temptation, of, of habit that we're stuck in. In Jesus' name, set us free. God, we claim physical wholeness. God, we speak health. We speak healing over bodies. God, right now, in Jesus' name, even those watching online in quarantine, we speak health over them in Jesus' name. God, we speak emotional healing and wholeness. God, we speak relational wholeness. God, whatever is in us that is broken, because Jesus was broken, we believe we can be whole. So we speak wholeness over your people. In Jesus' name, we receive it. We thank you for the body of Jesus. In Jesus' name, we pray. Everyone said, amen. You can take the bread. The worship team is going to lead us a little bit longer, and then we'll take the, the cup as you're standing. Enter in, lift your hands and sing.
now the covenant is I'm going to be faithful even when you're unfaithful. I'm going to honor you even when you don't honor me. I'm going to rescue you even when you're lost, even when you're far from me. I'm going to move mightily in your life as a new covenant if we enter into it with him, if we receive it. He said it's a new covenant with my blood. He said as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes again. So what are we doing when we partake of this today, church? We're declaring that Jesus died for us. We're declaring that Jesus is alive today. And we're declaring he's not done. He's coming back. It's what we declare as we take of the cup. But here's my favorite thing about the cup. There's a lot of great things about the cup. Here's my favorite thing. See, Jesus' blood was shed, yes, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. But more than that, Jesus' cup blood was shed so we could be free from our sins. See, there's a difference between forgiveness and freedom. I'm grateful for forgiveness. I can never enter into God's presence without forgiveness. I need forgiveness. I am desperate for forgiveness. But he didn't just say, I'm going to forgive your sins. He said, I'll set you free. I'll break your chains. I'll create you all new. I'll make a new creation out of you. He died to forgive our sins, but he died to free us from the power of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer have to sin. Why? Because of the cup. Because of the blood of Jesus. That's how powerful this is. Now, we don't believe this is actually physically his blood. We believe this is a symbol. And if you're worshiping with us online, we hope you found a symbol you can partake of. If you don't have grape juice, man, if you got some water or some orange juice, like the, the symbol isn't what's important. The power isn't what's in the cup. The power is what the cup represents. And what it represents is the most powerful thing there ever was. It's the blood of Jesus. So we're going to take this cup together in just a moment. We're going to pray over it. And then we're going to worship like we believe what we actually just declared. We believe Jesus died. We believe he's alive again. And we believe he's coming back. We believe he's forgiven our sins. But more than that, we believe he set us free from sin. And so we're going to worship and celebrate and honor and reverence the one who set us free. Would you take the cup and offer it up? We pray, Father God, right now we thank you for the cup. We thank you for the new covenant. God, we thank you that we no longer have to offer a bull or a lamb or a dove to cover our sin, but the perfect lamb was sent to be the sacrifice, the only one who could ever live the perfect holy life. And not only did he live that life for me, now you've attributed his righteousness to me. You've declared me righteous and you set me free from the need to sin. So right now, God, I just pray that you set your people free. God, not only in the spirit, you've already set us free, but set our minds free. Lord, give us revelation today. Let us see what Jesus has done for us. That we don't have to sin anymore. That we don't have to be stuck in habits and hang-ups and junk. Lord, if Jesus died, that we may be free. Your word says it is for freedom that you set us free. So we receive your freedom today. We declare the Lord's death until he comes again. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Take the cup, church. Would you enter in and worship with us? Sing like you believe this is really true, that Jesus really did this for us.